0: we mm-hmm. Going everybody, this is Chris. Welcome to the uh, landmark milestone 175th episode of X lapsed Where I have a, I really don't have anything special planned. Um, it's nice that we're getting another uh, multiple of 25 episode. Those don't come every day, so it's uh, it's neat that we got here. Um, I've said it before I didn't I didn't think we'd make it you know uh 12 episodes going all the way through uh Hox Pox here but uh here we are 175 episodes in we are well on our way to 200 and if if the rumors are accurate here I believe when I hit 100 um it might have been Damien who suggested that uh the Hickman run or this Krakoan era would probably take us to around episode 400 so we're almost halfway there I mean, how crazy is that? I mean, we'll probably go a few more episodes on that Since we are integrating things from the wider Marvel Universe at this point That happen to kind of commingle with our, uh, with our Krakoan books here But we're getting there We're really, really getting there And I want to thank you all so much for uh, joining me on this, uh, on this fool's errand Of trying to become X-Relevant again It really, really means the world to me So, let's get into today's book here Because it's a goodie this is Hellions, number 10, had a May 2021 cover date. Uh, it's called Funny Games Part 2 Hitbox, written by Zeb Wells, with art by Steven Segovia. Colors David Curiel, led as VCs Ariana Mar, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Amaro Basso White-Cebolski, cover price $3.99. This one went on sale March 3rd of 2021. Now, before we get into it, let's talk about the cover for just a sec here. It's designed to evoke an old Marvel cover. It's got a cast-filled corner box, a spot for the old-school UPC code, which, rather than being replaced with, like, a black-costumed Spidey head, has a black-and-white picture of Mr. Sinister's face instead. Sounds good. It's pretty cool-looking, and it appears to be an homage of Uncanny X-Men number 146. It took me a minute to realize that, but uh, as soon as I did notice it, I, you know... Couldn't not see it. Um, one thing, though, I mean, if you're going to do this, why not just go all the way with it here? Give us the, you know, Marvel Comics group banner along the top. You know, make the art look a little bit retro. I don't know. But uh, really nicely done here. Um, a very cool callback, especially with, uh, I don't know, if I'm just not as perceptive as I give myself credit for, or uh, if this is a very subtle homage. So I guess mileage will vary. We open, as is customary, with a mostly blank quote page here. This is Nightcrawler, advising us to all face our demons, and uh, that will play out during this issue. Well, Nightcrawler won't be in this issue, but uh, demons will be, or facing one's demons, I suppose. Now, our story opens, wherever the hell arcade has Mr. Sinister, all shackled up in a power-dampening chair. And they have a pretty fun back and forth here. Arcade asks some very simple questions, calling out for an unseen other to CONFIRM. He says Mr. Sinister's hair is as greasy as it looks, CONFIRM. And a voice from somewhere else says CONFIRMED. Also, Mr. Sinister is helpless in this chair, CONFIRM. CONFIRMED. Sinister then tries one himself, looking for confirmation that Arcade's teeth are veneers. The unseen other hesitates, and asks Arcade if he ought to confirm that. And I mean, it's it's all about that comic timing that we talk about so much in this book. This is this is funny stuff, um, uh, likely much funnier than I'm explaining it to be because, uh, unfortunately, I really don't have comic timing. But uh, we make do with what we have. Arcade then starts slapping Sinister around until all Essex asks him, like, "Hey, hey, hey, what what's going on here?" Right? He pulls a Mister Belding on us. Arcade reveals that he's got him here because Sinister has something he wants. Well. He has access to some things that Arcade wants Uh, As we all know, Sinister's got clones He's got oodles of them, and uh, Arcade wants some And so, Arcade used Mastermind to trick Sinister and bring him here Or, you know, poison Sinister, I suppose While Arcade monologues, we can see on the monitor bank That all of the Hellions are engaging with robots in separate rooms We see Quanon running from one Grey Crow is sitting in a jeep looking at one. Wild Child is swiping at one. Empath is, well, he's sitting in front of an empty plate while licking his chops. No robot there just yet. Nanny and Orphan Maker are just standing by, and uh, this will all come around and make sense, so no worries there. Sinister suggests that Wingard, uh, Mastermind, probably isn't the most trustworthy guy, right? It's like, uh, hey, he, he double crossed me, Arcade, he's gonna double cross you as well. Jason then tells him that, uh, hey, I just double-crossed you before you had the opportunity to double-cross me, so it's, uh, (laughs) no, no honor among thieves here. Arcade then reveals that he knows for a fact that Mastermind won't betray him because, well, he's got Jason's daughter, Martinique, sitting in a torture device just in case something like that were to occur. Worth noting, the Mastermind's daughter's gimmick is pretty confusing as I don't think when uh, Chris Claremont created this one, he knew that there already was one. Uh, Claremont created his during Extreme X-Men, around the time of the turn of the century. The other was from the Jeff Loeb, Tim Sale, Wolverine Gambit miniseries from 1995, where, you know, if I'm not mistaken, she was actually tied up with Arcade there to begin with. To make matters more confusing... We're told that this character, who's in, you know, bondage, uh, right about to be slapped around by torture devices here, is Martinique. But it's actually the other one, Regan, uh, the blonde. So, uh... uh. Now, Regan, we last saw her being rescued from the Sidri-infested Xavier mansion back in Giant Size X-Men Nightcrawler Number 1. And before that, we saw her arriving on Krakoa in House of X Number 5. Um, I mean, I don't know if one hand knew what the other was doing in either of those books, but, um... Gotta figure, this is probably just an error or editorial oversight. And even though Hellions is probably my favorite book of this line, it's still something I probably ought to mention. Uh, now, I mean, not counting Sobolsky, there are three ep- editors assigned to this book, so this sort of thing probably shouldn't happen, right? I don't know. Anyway, so yeah, Arcade wants Sinister to create clones to fill his murder world with. But from here we go to a double-page spread of roll, call, and cred. Our characters today include Havoc, Orphan Maker, Nanny, Wildchild, Psylocke, Empath, Grey Crow, Mr. Sinister, Mastermind, Arcade, and Miss Locke. We jump back to comics, and we are in Room 3, where Psylocke is living out a normal day as a young mother in rural Japan. She has a daughter, we know that. She excitedly runs over to her and asks if she can have some pudding. Gwinnon agrees, and uh, while the child washes her hands in preparation of the dessert, we can see the body-shopped version of Psylocke maniacally grinning in the weeds. Now, we know this is like the body shop one, because she's got those, like, a clockwork orange gimmicks on her face, like keeping her eyes open. You know what I'm talking about. From here, we go to room two. John, Cra- John Gray Crow is in a war zone. Maybe Vietnam. It looks Vietnam-ish. Now, he's just killed a gaggle of enemy combatants and doesn't appear to be handling it all that well. He's not very comfortable with the fact that he had to do that. His fellow soldiers, however, pat him on the back, and they tell him he did a good thing, and they also tell him that he's a good man. Gray Crow takes pause before uh, revealing a half-smirk. He's, he's, you know, okay, this isn't bad. Off to room six, Empath be eating. Manuel is shoveling food into his mouth while his mother reminds him that the dentist wants him to eat his veggies. Empath reminds her that he made the dentist run the drill through his own head. Mom is a guest and tells Manuel to behave because, well, they've got guests. And the guests include everybody who he's ever hurt. Empath takes a look at the crowded room and smiles. Next stop, room five. Wildchild watches Wolverine and Sabretooth fight. Then, he reveals himself, which scares them both away. Wolverine in particular says, Oh hell no, it's Wildchild, the big dog, and he's gone. Over to room one, Nanny and the Orphan Maker. Nanny is suddenly overcome with children to look after, which makes her so very happy. But it makes Orphan Maker feel only more neglected. But then, a second nanny appears, one who will only take care of Call Me Pete, so everybody's happy. Finally, we go to room four. Havoc approaches Madeline Pryor, who is mechanicing on an airplane. He's surprised to see her, and she, she tells him that she's always been here, and uh, she's never ever going to leave. And they kiss. From here, we go back to reality. Sinister, Arcade, and Locke are watching Alex make out with, and perhaps bang, a robot mannequin. Sinister suggests that this is too weird even for him. Then, Miss Locke goes to touch Arcade's shoulder, asking if it's touching time. He's kind of embarrassed, and he slaps her away. Which makes me think that maybe Miss Locke might be a robot mannequin herself. Um... And from the looks and sounds of it, her primary function might be to, well, touch Arcade. Seeing Havoc plowing the bot might have made old Arcade feel a bit self-conscious, especially with the repulsion that Mr. Sinister showed when uh, upon seeing it. At this point, Sinister's like, okay, screw it, I'm going to help you. He's going he's gonna to help Arcade, he'll give him all the clones he could ever need. And Arcade is sort of pleased. I mean, he's getting the answer he wants just not the way he wanted to get it. You see, he wanted Sinister to resist so that he could be justified in torturing him some. Because he wants Sinister to have to beg to let him help, just in order to stop the torture, to stop the pain. And so, Arcade decides that, hey, you know what, I make the rules here, what the hell. I'm just going to torture you anyway. And so he tilts the power-dampening chair back And prepares to perform some horrific dental surgery We jump back to Psylocke's room Now she's serving up some flan for her daughter But first, she's got some questions You see, everything feels a little too perfect, right? It's a little too comfortable here And from what we know about Quinana, she's not good with comfort, you know She's got one question primarily She asks her daughter what her name is What's your name, child? The child can't answer, as she doesn't know Just then, the body shop Psylocke bursts into the scene and attack And our Psylocke freaks out and psychically calls out to John Greycrow This takes us back to John's room He's shocked by Quinan's call, and he drops to his knees He looks over to the enemies that he'd just killed Instead of them being rival soldiers here, they are the Morlocks Who he helped slaughter during the mutant massacre And, I mean, we only know this because the Legion lookalike Erg is among the pile. From here we go to an info page, and it's an internal memo from Murder World. And if we read through this, it seems like Arcade is probably not the best person to have to work for. Back to reality, and Arcade is still in the process of plucking teeth out of Sinister's head. Miss Locke reveals that there's something odd going on in the rooms. And Arcade, he's tired of it. He's like, okay, just go tell Ma- Mastermind to kill the Hellions. I don't care. I'm having too much fun playing dentist, and I don't need the hassle or the distraction. From here, we jump back into Empath's room, where he learns that his powers don't work here. He finds himself surrounded by all the folks he ever hurt before. Um, none of them are outright recognizable, just normal folks. They are armed, however, and their weapons will work here. Then Wild Child. He is now being beaten up by Wolverine, Sabretooth, and I think Romulus. Uh, that whole Romulus thing is a little bit foggy to me. Then Havoc, who we see in bondage at the feet of Maddie. Quanon runs from Body Shop Psylocke. Grey Crow is now being eaten by Morlock zombies. Nanny and Orphan Maker are being swarmed by those children. And back to reality, Arcade then tells Sinister that, uh, okay, I'm about ready to let you beg. To help me right now And Sinister confirms that he will Help, and that Is where we leave it Next episode, more Wolverine guest Appearancing in the pages of Runaways Number 34 But that's a discussion for another day Let's talk about Hellions here Uh, Should come as no surprise, I love this issue I mean, it is Hellions It's just uh, a wonderful Wonderful book here Um Let's talk about the perhaps tropiness of uh, of everything we're experiencing in this story here. Um, the X Men being singled out to deal with their worst hopes and or fears is something we've probably seen dozens of times before, right? I want to say upon Chris Claremont's return around the turn of the century, it felt like a bi monthly occurrence. <laughs> and no matter what book he was in, whether it be Uncanny or Volume Two or New Excalibur or Exiles. He always had this bit where he would separate the team, have them face off against their worst fears, overcome them. It's, you know, it was not not the greatest of times. So with Claremont, it was either face your worst fear or facing off against X-Men doppelgangers. Um, Claremont will go to that well pretty often. It's tropey, right? And it sometimes feels like a cop-out. Here, however, it actually works. It fits into the story that's being told here, a... More lo-fi murder world Where rather than relying on, you know, the giant pinball machine It's more about, you know, psychological horror here On a much smaller scale, but equally as devastating and traumatizing So this sort of thing makes perfect sense to be featured here Now let's go through these scenarios one at a time here Quan'an, I mean, it's more Betsy stuff Right, it, it's, you know, we've seen a lot Every time we see Quinan it's, it's Betsy stuff And a lot of times we see Betsy, it's Quinan's stuff However, this is the one instance where it actually makes sense for them to pursue more of it Right in this issue This is all in Quanan's head, right? And it allows her to ask many inconvenient questions Like, hey, which one of us is more real, right? Quinan was here in an unreal situation Away from her fears and worries that in and of itself worried her Things were too perfect She knew the scenario she was in was way too good to be true Her perceived paradise is infiltrated by the body shopped Betsy Now that kind of actually parallels what likely happened during her real life She was replaced, she was inhabited, she was infiltrated This works, this works Though, it must be said that uh, we've got a Quanon vs. Betsy bit coming up in Excalibur So maybe after this we put a moratorium on this for a little while Maybe we don't pursue Quanon Betsy all the time (laughs) Maybe we just take a break from it, please Um, New Grey Crow, uh, he has issues being uh, a bad guy During, I'm assuming, Vietnam Very interesting His fellow soldiers all bolster him up They treat him like he's a hero a hero for doing something morally objectionable, I guess one can argue, in a situation wherein he had no choice but to act. He smirks when he's complimented, perhaps given a measure of peace with the decision that he was forced to make. But then, he sees his victims as the helpless and mostly innocent Morlocks, who, as a legacy marauder, Grey Crow took part in massacring. We see a bit of like nebulous causality here, and uh, I feel like it worked... You know, this isn't the face-a-dark-version-of-yourself version of being stood before your worst fear, right? That's the, usual, that's the usual way we see this sort of story play out. This has more to do with truly accepting and digesting one's actions or playing out one's deepest and perhaps darkest fantasy scenarios. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. Let's do Wildchild. Him being the big dog is, uh, is pretty great. Uh, having him scare off Wolverine and Sabretooth feels quite appropriate, especially when I feel like Kyle can be, and sometimes is, viewed as, like, the store-brand version of both characters. And we've seen, um, since Kyle's re- weird resurrection a few issues back, that he's got a bit of a alpha growing in him, right? And as such, this fantasy is pretty perfect, right? Plus, it gets all the Wolverine completionists to have to pick up a book Maybe they wouldn't have otherwise, so there's that as well Uh, Empath stuffing his face was... interesting, I guess Um, This one didn't feel like a fantasy that was playing out so much Though I guess from his sick smile upon realizing that he was surrounded by everyone he'd ever harmed We might assume that it was I gotta say, I feel like this was probably the weakest of the visions Um... Nanny and Orphan Maker, they were together Uh, Nanny was able to live out her fantasy uh, Initially In that she found herself surrounded by babies That she could raise and nurse and protect Poor Pete was neglected Which is what's been going on in his life Since his weird resurrection And Nanny's as well Seeing this, Mastermind sends a second Nanny in Who will only pay attention to Pete And so everybody is happy Finally, we've got Havoc And his desire to be submissive to Maddie Pryor? Hey, I'm I'm not going to kink shame. We've all got our stuff. Uh, But uh, all joking aside, this was a pretty great scene. Maddie saying that she's always been there and won't ever leave was very strong and and heartbreaking in a way because we know in reality that uh, she's gone. And if uh, the quiet council has their way, she ain't ever coming back. Going from that back to reality, where it's revealed that Alex is just grinding on a robot? It's strange, yeah. But it led to an equally strong scene with Arcade and Sinister. I mean, Sinister seems skeeved out by Alex making out with a robot. Just then, we're given the distinct impression that Arcade's own Ms. Locke is a robot, because she starts rubbing on him, only to be slapped away. Maybe Arcade took Sinister's cringing a little personally, which uh, only makes sense here. I mean, who? Who could love Arcade, right? Ugh. Let's talk more about Arcade. As mentioned, his new venture is a more low-tech motor- murder world here. Less giant pinball machine, more straight-up psychological and physical torture and horror. I like this. I like this in a lot of ways here. Because um, not only is it is it fitting, and it's an easy way to keep Arcade relevant without... Like, he still has the hokiness to his character here, because I think deep down we know that, uh... We can tell that this shift is being made more out of necessity than choice here. The way he dismisses his earlier take on Murder World is pretty telling, if you ask me. It's almost like, uh, you know, he's protesting too much. He's like, yeah, I'm not gonna waste my time with any of that stuff, despite the fact that that was kind of the whole game. That was like Arcade's whole gimmick was these silly Rube Goldbergian sort of murder devices and just um, flat-out fun and horrific toys that were being played with. But times are changing. Times are different, and so he needs to uh, scale back a little bit, you know? Uh, utilizing Mastermind and eventually some black market clone seems probably like the right way for Arcade to go. Speaking of clones... Um, <laughs> I love the fact that Sinister simply agreeing to aid Arcade just wasn't good enough. Uh, Arcade wanted to torture him, and so despite having little to gain in doing so, he does. I mean, that's, a uh, Mr. Sinister as this weird and just skeevy character who is in these odd positions... This is a sort of Sinister I never would have imagined seeing And especially I wouldn't imagine liking uh, Growing up in the 90s here And having that one version of Sinister I never would have thought that uh, we'd see this And that I'd, I'd like it as much as I do But uh, gotta admit, it's funny seeing Sinister being tortured I, I mean, what does that say about me? That's, uh, <laughs> that's pretty horrific But all I'm picturing is like the Hellions coming out, seeing him tied up in this weird dentist chair with teeth missing and just all cracking up laughing. You know, that's, that's the scene that I want to see here. I don't know that we will, but uh, from the last time when Sinister was abducted and the Hellions had a good laugh over it, I think we could use another one of those. Um, I tell you, uh, this is a wonderful, wonderful book here. It somehow walks the tightrope between gory and cartoony, uh, doesn't commit to either completely But somehow nails both You know A lot of that is, you know, the comic timing of Zeb Wells But Steven Segovia here is killing it Killing it on the art here It's just wonderful, wonderful stuff um, A blend of horror and comedy Which is very tough to pull off um, But does so very, very well Makes it look easy So, as I say, every time we cover an episode of Hellions here If you ain't reading this book You ought to be Because it is a good time But that's all I have to say about it Before we cut out of here Let's hop into the mailbag We got a letter from Jesse And he says Wow, 175 episodes in I checked my variant rip-off guidebook And that tells me that this is a die-cut cover episode So I got the scissors out So I'm going to figure this one out somehow I just hope I don't shatter my, my screen here Jesse continues I want to thank you for including other appearances of X characters throughout the 616 as part of your reading goal. I'm a little behind on a few titles out there, but keep up with the X books when they come out, and this makes me dig those books out. The output at Marvel right now may be a landmark in how good and creative it is. Daredevil has been one of my top books to read. Thor, Hulk, and Runaways have also been at the top of my pile. Spider-Man I'm way behind on, but I've been enjoying that. Avengers is a confusing mess right now with the Phoenix stuff going on. You mentioned with Excalibur how you feel like you missed an issue, and that's how I feel about Avengers. I'm about a two-thirds Marvel zombie, so I'll get them and read them. I need to get in and read more Black Cat, even if there will be a huge crossover. And I mean, come on, I'll get all of that too. I can't wait to crack open my Savage Avengers and Strange Academy, having only read a few of these, and see how much they tie in with the X stuff. Magic is the new Wolverine. And I tell you what, I've heard so much good stuff about um, a lot of the stuff coming out at Marvel nowadays here. And uh, I only wish I had more time to invest in in checking it out and spreading my wings a little bit here. I mentioned during one of the recent Off the Beaten Path episodes that uh, every time I read a non-X Marvel book, I get like all sort of giddy and excited and—not giddy uh, not Gideon, uh, no, no, giddy and excited— I'm certainly not Gideon But uh, I get excited And I want to know more And I want to read more And it's some of these books are just plain fun Books like you mentioned there Runaways is just plain fun Black Hat, fun You know, these books are, are just They're not trying to be anything more than what they are um, I've heard plenty of good things about Daredevil I just haven't pulled the trigger on it just yet I've heard a lot of good things about Hulk But I am a little uh, trepidatious about hopping into that Thor, I've never had any interest in. <laughs> I've never had any interest in Thor. Uh, Spider-Man, I come and go with Spider-Man. I'm sure I'll be back sometime sometime down the line, and then I'll leave again. I'll come back. Spider-Man is kind of like, uh, he's my Marvel Batman, you know, where I don't have to always read Batman. I'll, I'll come and I'll go. Uh, whereas when I'm in a DC frame of mind here, I'll be like all about Teen Titans or Superman, but... Batman is, eh, every once in a while. Spider-Man's the same way. I can, I can come and go and enjoy it or not. It's just a, one of those books for me. Now, Avengers is one that I was kind of considering, like, I, I flipped through a few issues of it. And yes, it, it's, it's a mess. I mean, it feels like it's a confusing mess. Then again, I'm speaking out of turn because I haven't read any of this volume. But from what I have looked at, and that does include the Phoenix stuff, it's just like I don't know what any of this is. <laughs> I don't know who any of these characters are, and I mean it's Jason Aaron. I love Jason Aaron's work, so I mean I'm sure I'm sure it's good. I'm sure it's quality, but uh, it's a bit of a a bit of an investment, right? Um, things like uh, Savage Avengers. I picked up a few issues of that from the uh, from the bins, and I'm also we're going to be covering the King and Black stuff on the show very very soon. But, I mean, I'm flipping through these, and it's Jerry Duggan, and love Jerry Duggan. The early issues have Mike Diodato on art, and he drew a scene with Wolverine fighting Conan. And, I mean, everything in my head says I should hate that. I should hate the fact that they have Conan fighting Wolverine. But I couldn't look away because it was just so gorgeous. I mean, it looked amazing. So, I mean, there's so many books that I'd love to I'd love to give a try, to here. Um, Cole, over in the uh, Facebook group, said to try Strange Academy because it's really good. I want to try it out. I figure maybe when I'm caught up, maybe when we're caught up with X-Labs and it's not... I mean, there will come a time where this show isn't every day, you know, whether that's by necessity or because we caught up and there just aren't any more books out and I haven't gotten my DCBS order yet, there will be time. Eventually, I think we're probably about two months away from that time being a thing, but it's coming. It's coming. So maybe when I have uh, some more free time and uh, I, are, I'm not so underwater with uh, the to-do list for X-Lapsed, then I can maybe spread my wings a little bit here. Books like Daredevil. I, I mean, it's Chip Zosky, who I don't know very well, but uh, his X-Men Fantastic Four was a lot of fun. So it's like, I think I want to try it. So... We'll see. We'll see how it goes here. Uh, Jesse continues. What have been some of your favorite and least favorite stories in Hoxpox Pox Rock's era so far? As much as you dislike the space stuff, I like the New mutant story with the Shi'ar, and I didn't mind Brew becoming the King of the Brood. Have we seen Brew since? He was hanging around with the Agents of Wakanda before this story, but I don't think we've seen him since. Hellions is my favorite book, and every issue I read just makes me love it more. Exoswords was a little long, but I also loved most of that. It gave Polaris the boost she may have needed to make her win the voting make her the voting winner. Well, that's a great question. Um, some of my favorite stuff here. I've been kind of racking my brain trying to go through everything we've covered uh, to this point, point. and some of my favorite stories here are uh, definitely uh, X-Men number six and number seven. Uh, number six was the Mystique story that had us back on the Orcus Forge, finding out you know, exactly what she was doing during um, whatever issue of uh, Hox Pox that was, where uh, all the X-Men died, uh, taking out the the Mother Mold or the Master, whatever they called that thing. I think it was the Mother Mold. But Mystique's solo story there was wonderful. Um, made me feel like we were actually reading Hoxpox Pox again, which was a—it was it was fun because— Hoxbox was intimidating And it was challenging And it gave us just so much information And For someone like me who gets hung up On continuity And everything being on the table Here I Think I projected a lot of my worries Onto Hoxbox where I mean if you listen to the early episodes They're probably cringe fest where I'm just like Don't take my continuity away What life are we in? What what, what still exists? What doesn't exist? But um uh, this story with Mystique was also challenging in that it made me feel like we were back in Hoxpox Pox here. So it's like, I feel like I had to mentally prepare for that episode and uh, try to like get my game up to uh, a higher... I mean, not that my game is, is great, even on the best of days here, but I feel like I, I had to take it to another level here to give that episode the proper um, proper treatment, the proper attention. Then we have X-Men number 7, which introduced us to the concept of the Crucible. Now, the Crucible has given us a ton to think about, talk about, just chew on ever since. And we've seen it come back a couple of times since then. But uh, it was never quite so shocking as in that issue of X-Men there, where uh, Arrow is just taken down by Apocalypse. It's sobering, very sobering scene here. Um, I think that was probably... The biggest shoe drop moment uh, ever since the uh, the reveal during House of X number five with the resurrection protocols and the evil mutants coming to live on Krakoa. I feel like that's how big a deal the introduction of the Crucible was because uh, and the way it was presented was very very wonderful because it was subtle. You know, we were told that oh the, this thing is happening. We didn't know what it was. We didn't know what it what was what it was all about. We didn't know why it was. Well, we we had an idea why it was, but who would approve it? You know, who, why would anybody let this happen? And we got it felt like um, that old story about the lottery, right, where the, like a little town has a lottery and the winner is just stoned to death. You know, you get this sinister feeling around this lottery, but you can't quite put your finger on it until the you know the trigger is pulled. With the crucible here, it's like there was this trepidation and excitement from all the characters. This is something that people wanted, but also were kinda of put off by. Cyclops and Nightcrawler go off and they talk about what this means. Wolverine and Cyclops talk about what this means. And then finally, it's presented, and it's kind of like an Occam's Razor situation here, because it is exactly what it looks like. You know, this is a person being slaughtered so they can be brought back to life. A wonderful, wonderful issue, and I'm sure we will talk about it a lot more, even you know, even now, whereas It still resonates, and it's still very, very strong, and it's still a foundation of this era. And uh, I still love it as a concept, as a concept. I have a little bit of trouble with it in practice, but in concept, I love the fact that it's giving us so much food for thought. Uh, Hellions, in full. I haven't had an issue with this book yet that I've been disappointed with. Uh, This is uh, the—I remember before we got into Wave 2 of the Dawn of X books here, I said Marauders is the most consistent— Top quality, but consistently quality book Hellions has taken that from Marauders here Hellions has never disappointed It's given us so much to think about So much to talk about A book that looks like, like I mentioned here It's got this weird blend of horror, gore, comedy, and cartoon It shouldn't work It really, really shouldn't work But then they give us scenes like Madeline Pryor Begging that, that Havoc tell people that she was a real girl and it's heartbreaking You know, it's just Wonderful, wonderful stuff here It's, I can't say enough good things About it um, X-Factor after the Mojo World Arc Because I did not like the Mojo World Arc I <laughs> I When reading X-Factor number 2 I, I I love that I'm getting this question for this Milestone episode Because it's really given me an opportunity To go down memory lane here and uh, I beg your indulgence In allowing me to do this But uh I remember when I covered X Factor number two, which I felt was probably one of the one of the most cringy comics that I've covered in a very, very long time. I reached out to some of the uh, listeners and I was like, hey, am I crazy (laughs) or is this book really hard to read? And I got a mixed result. I got people saying, oh, I loved it absolutely loved it and i had some other people being like oh man that's where i stopped x-factor i was so excited for x-factor and i couldn't make it past the second issue so i <laughs> i had trouble with that one um after we got out of mojo world though uh starting with the uh, the Swords issue where we found out that uh if you die in other world you don't come back the same very very strong and uh like you said it put polaris in the spotlight to the point where she is now Viewed as a solid, I'd say B plus player, right? In in the uh, in the X Men universe, she's not a she's not a D level, she's not a C level, she's she's bordering on A right now. She is a high profile, so I I definitely credit uh, Leo Williams and David Baldion for uh, for you know pumping her up there. Uh, the despite the fact that I hate the space stuff, the, I did enjoy the New Mutants Shiar story. I thought that was really good. Uh, it's it's one of those things where it's a good news, bad news thing because it set us up, right? It set us up for, like, this weird sunspot as Magnum P.I. story where he's kind of breaking the fourth wall, but he's kind of also just like an egotistical jerk who might just monologue to himself because he thinks he's that important. And I, I like the character dynamics during that. We saw the little... I don't want to say a schism, but we saw the generation gap between the New Mutants and Generation X. Uh, you know, Cannonball comes back, and the New Mutants are all overjoyed to see him. Meanwhile, Chamber and Mondo are just like, yeah, it's that guy. Okay, we'll hang out over here. I thought that was a really well-done story here, but it set us up for uh, it, it, like it, it wrote a check that, unfortunately, um, Ed Brisson couldn't cash. You know, uh, instead of Getting more of that, we got, like, the farm story. You know, we got the uh, the Cosmar story. Weren't very strong. They just weren't very strong. We had uh, a Boom Boom as a drunk. I mean, it just wasn't wasn't great. But the opening salvo with uh, with Sunspot in the uh, point-of-use sp- uh, position there was, was a lot of fun. I, I thought that was really cool. Uh, marauders, most of the time. There have been issues of Marauders I didn't much care for. I've talked about that... A lot. Um, I don't really like the way Call Me Kate is uh, is depicted a lot of the times, um, and I think there was a bit of water treading in a few of the ep- in a few of the issues um, recently. Which I mean, we're in between our we're in between crossovers here. It's it's a weird nebulous time, so I, I guess we can forgive that. It's mostly a top quality book, though. I don't think I've ever been disappointed outright by it, but um, I haven't. I certainly haven't liked it as much as Hellions. Now, speaking of Marauders here, the dinner party scene during Exoswords, I had more fun with that than I think anything in Exoswords. That was a wonderfully strong um, scene there, and I think that was Jerry Duggan and Ben Percy writing that together, and they, they brought it. They really brought it here. They fleshed out these characters who were nothing, right? They were just... Semi-cool, semi-interesting designs They weren't characters, necessarily We had, okay, well there's the Anubis-looking one There's the one that looks like Firestorm All we knew was, a what's-a-face? A Iska, Iska the Unbeaten That was the only member of this crew that we really knew a whole heck of a lot about And, I mean, we had the White Sword who, I mean I can only speak for myself, but I didn't care about him until the dinner party story You know, we saw him as an honorable sort you know, when he saw that. I think it was the Horseman Death um, tried poisoning Wolverine, right? We see that, and he's like, and the White Swords like, these are the people I'm on the same side as. You know, how how did I get stuck doing this here? We can see that he is he's got his own code of ethics. I think that that two parter there did more for Exoswords than anything else. It was just so well done, so well done. I've enjoyed most of Cable. Cable has been really good outside of the Swords issue, um, or maybe it was two issues. I, I wasn't too keen on those, but uh, everything else has been great for Cable. Um, it's unfortunate that Cable is uh, going to be going away soon, so I guess we can enjoy it while we have it. Um, I really liked the Wolverine Auction House story, and I also really liked, I think it was Wolverine number four, where he's at that, uh, that weird tavern where... Um, I think I I think I compared it to like an episode of The Twilight Zone here, where he unwittingly walked into like a mutant survivor, mutant attack survivor support group or something like that. I thought that was a lot of fun and uh, probably the first time in that volume where I was like, okay, this this book kinda has a reason to exist. Uh, finally, here is to not take up everybody's entire day here. Um, the X Force issues that were focused on Domino and Colossus, where. And I think this was right around the time that the Crucible was introduced in X-Men. I think, I think we actually did these two episodes back-to-back, back, um, where we're talking about Colossus asking Domino, why don't they just walk into the ocean? You know, why don't they just kill themselves? And they explored the option of suicide here, and it made us ask a lot of questions about the trauma that they face, the trauma that they are brought back with, um, the trauma that they can choose to leave behind or bring bring with them. In the end of that story arc, Domino dies, and she tells uh, she tells Peter to make sure that she remembers everything. She wants her trauma. She wants to remember that Zeno had her in a in a you know in a canister and were tearing off chunks of her skin to power other Zeno people. She wanted to remember that. Then she comes back and she doesn't remember any of that, which I mean. That's, that gives us some questions to ask, too I, I, I think that was probably the high point of X-Force for me But back to Jesse He says, speaking of, I'm wondering about the team dynamics and redundancy with this new X-team Having Sync, one of my, one of my favorite comic characters, and Rogue on the same team with powers that are very similar Will be interesting to see what happens I love the li- I love the team lineup, and I can't wait to see what happens next there It's doubtful Polaris of X-Factor and Rogue of Excalibur will leave their teams, but we'll have to wait and see what happens in this book. You point out that uh, Rogue and Sync have similar powers, and I I gotta figure that that's probably... Maybe I'm, I'm just, you know, swinging wildly here, but I think that's gotta be intentional, because, like, if we look at New Mutants right now, so much of that is based on using powers uh, synergistically or however you say that word um just tandem using tandem offense here we've seen like magic and wolfsbane work together and like the portal shoots out five wolves and i think they're really putting emphasis on the fact that these these powers can be ampli- maybe amplified maybe just um Complemented is probably the better way to say that. Here we've got these powers being complemented. I wonder if that's what they have in mind for Rogue and uh, and Sync. Uh, like you said, it's going to remain to be seen here. Um, I agree with you. I don't think that Polaris or Rogue will leave their other books. I hope they do. I mean, I, I hope they do. They do, and I hope they don't. <laughs> it's weird because I like Polaris and X Factor. I really do. Rogue is one of the few bright spots in Excalibur. So if she leaves, unless they change the entire um, mission statement of that book or just cancel it, uh, (laughs) I, I don't know how that book would work without Rogue in it. Having Gambit still in it, I mean, it could just be weird. So you're probably right. You're probably right that they're going to stick around there. I do miss the days where, you know, the teams were a little bit more, I guess for lack of a better term, like not so much segregated, but just set in stone, you know? We had, like, the gold strike force, we had the blue strike force, and you knew what who was where when. And if another character showed up, like if Storm showed up in Volume 2, it was treated as a guest appearance because that's not her home book until, of course, it was uh, Crossover Central over there. But, uh, like you said, it, I think it'll remain to be seen. Jesse continues, The stuff that I could put in a box and never take out again would be the Empire Crossover. Fallen Angels, the first few issues of Wolverine, and that farm stuff in New Mutants. Marauders is growing on me, but in, but it's still not my favorite, and Excalibur is bland and confusing. So yes, my least favorite stuff here. Um, yeah, The Empire Grossover. All of it. <laughs> All of it. I think we got two issues of X-Men uh, Volume 5 that were part of Empire as well. Yeah, deep six that. That can go in the box and never come out again. Wolverine and Hell... Can go in the box and never come out again uh, Basically all of Excalibur Except for like that weird Warwolf hunting two-parter I think we can put that all away um, Because I, I, while the Warwolf one wasn't my favorite I, I can't say I didn't you know enjoy it I thought that was pretty good stuff um, The Mojo World uh, X-Factor stuff I don't ever need to look at again The Farm stuff in New Mutants I also don't ever need to look at again Fallen Angels. I recommend nobody ever look at ever again. What else? What else did I not like? Um, I know we disagree on this one, but uh, the the brew two parter that I never need to see again. <laughs> and finally the um, the X Men uh, the X Men twelve X Men fourteen deal where we got the same story twice. I don't need to see either. One of those again Uh, Jesse wraps up with Well, Chris, thanks for all you do to entertain us And as soon as I can find some time You'll be hearing my take on Generation X once again So until I don't fall asleep reading 60s X-Men Make mine X laps. Oh, that's cold-blooded, man I I agree (laughs) I agree Some of those 60s stories are Kind of hard to get through I mean, that was one of the... uh, I've talked about this. Um, I don't know if I talked about it on this show, but uh, certainly on this channel, I've talked about how every year I would have one New Year's resolution. Um, this is this goes like back ten years before I actually started doing the you know this this you know comic comment, comics con- commentary content. Every New Year's Day, I would uh, I would resolve to start a blog, and I would. Uh, I would open up a blog page, I'd, you know, register a name, I'd open up the little, you know, the, the blogger template, and I'd sit there, and I might type out a paragraph or two, and I might type out some credits, because they were all comics-related blogs that I was uh, planning on, you know, creating. And then, you know, lunch would come, and I'd be like, okay, I guess uh, I'll come back to this sometime, and I never, ever would. And one of my ideas was to do a, uh, not so much a daily blog, but a uh, a regular blog where I went through every single issue of Uncanny X-Men. And so I pulled out uh, the Essential, I think it was Essential Uncanny X-Men is what they called it, uh, because Essential X-Men started with Giant Size. It was one of the first Essential volumes they put out. So in order to collect the older stuff, uh, the first volume was Essential Uncanny X-Men, the subsequent two volumes were essential, cl- uh, essential Classic X-Men, I think. So I lugged out that first volume of Essential Uncanny X-Men, and I started to read through it, thinking that I was going to write, you know, semi-regularly about each issue in it. And boy, I, I didn't make it far in the read. I mean... Of course, I you know I am an X-Men fan and I have a certain amount of admiration and love for those stories and uh, the seminal bits and pieces that are in them, but they're not as fun to read as the later stuff that I can absolutely say. <laughs> but uh, I want to thank you so much for uh, the kind words there, Jesse, and for uh, sharing sharing with us uh, your favorites and not so favorites. Uh, that's definitely a question I'd love to uh, to ask everybody. Everybody who's listening who uh, would like to take part, please let me know your favorite bits of the Hox Pox Rocks era and maybe some of your least favorite bits. Uh, I think there's a lot of meat on that bone, and getting uh, different perspectives here is, uh, I think that could be a lot of fun here. I think we're going to, we'll agree on some things, we'll disagree on some things, but, uh, I mean, that's kind of the point, right? So thank you so much for, uh, well, everything, I guess. So thank you, thank you so much. Now, if you'd like to get a hold of me, if you'd like to share your favorites and not-so-favorites, or just talk about anything in the wide world of X or otherwise, please feel free to uh, hit me up. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. For blog posts and show notes, you can go over to chrissoninfiniteearths.com to chat us up on Facebook, maybe even uh, share some of your favorites and not-so-favorites there. You can find us there on Facebook as 90s X-Men. Uh, There's also Instagram 90s X-Men There still is only one lonely post there And for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs Please check out chrisandreggie.podbean.com It's available anywhere you can find noise and sound But that will do it for today Went a little bit longer than I thought we would But uh, had a heck of a fun conversation with myself And that's always a good thing So I'd like to thank you all so much for all your support over these past 175 episodes. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.